Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. The Supreme Court this week heard oral arguments in a big case that could determine the level of protection voters are going to get in our country, at least in the short term. This is all happening against the backdrop of a slew of new voting restriction bills that are being proposed in states throughout the country. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about a bear sighting and a vaccine. With that incredibly odd introduction, welcome, Joe. Not so odd, Jessica. It's just life in the 21st century. Lovely to talk to you. Can't wait to hear about that vaccination, but let's get rolling. This is a case today about whether two election laws in Arizona violate the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution itself. Can you please give us a little bit of backstory about that Voting Rights Act? When was it passed and what was it designed to do? Yeah, the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 is a landmark piece of civil rights legislation in our country. And it's been enormously effective. And it basically has two pillars. The first pillar is something called Section 5. And that said to certain states, certain localities, you have a history of activities that we're not particularly comfortable with that might look like voter suppression. And so before you make any change in your voting laws, you have to check in with us, the federal government, and we have to give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down. You want to change where your polling place is? Let us know first. You want to change how your ballot's designed? Let us know first. Now, the second piece... Um, is so-called Section 2, and that's different where it says to individual plaintiffs, do you think that your vote was burdened on account of your color or your race or your membership in a certain protected language group? Then you have to come forward with enough evidence to show that that happened, and then we'll determine whether or not um, your rights have, in fact, been violated. So those are the two big pillars of the Voting Rights Act. And again, Up until 2013, when we lost one of those pillars, an enormously effective piece of civil rights legislation really designed against the backdrop of a situation where particularly African Americans in the South were facing aggressive discriminatory voting laws. All right, Jessica, so what happened in 2013 that changed this paradigm? Well, in 2013, the Supreme Court came out with an important case called Shelby County. And essentially what it did is it eviscerated one of those two pillars of the Voting Rights Act. It eliminated Section 5, or at least it said that the formula to determine who is covered under Section 5 is no longer constitutional. So that means that Section 5 stands as this hollow promise And it does not protect us against states and localities that might have a history of discriminatory voting behavior. Sorry, let me just take that again. Sure. Three, two, one. So what happened in 2013 is the Supreme Court came out with a really important decision in a case called Shelby County. And essentially what happened is that the Supreme Court eviscerated Section 5. So it stands there as a hollow promise for voter protection but it's no longer in use. Um, You might hear as we're recording this that there's some raindrops in the background. I'm thinking of that, I'm mentioning that because in her dissent in the Shelby County case, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously said, uh, throwing out half of the Voting Rights Act now is like throwing out your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because it kept you dry. And what she was saying, of course, is, look, the Voting Rights Act is working. 
And so for us to trash it now makes absolutely no sense. And indeed, right after that decision came out in 2013, a lot of states and jurisdictions, local jurisdictions, started implementing much more restrictive voting laws. And obviously this has big implications for um, electoral turnout and what happens in our elections, not just on the presidential level, but also in state and other federal offices. So huge, huge consequences from that 2013 decision. Right. It seems to me that this is an example of whether or not people will do the right thing without oversight, having eviscerated the second half of the Voting Rights Act. Now, let's talk specifically, Jessica, about one of those states. Arizona has a case before the Supreme Court this term. There are a couple election laws that are at issue here. What's going on? So there's two different provisions of uh, Arizona law that are at issue here. And as you said, one deals with something called ballot harvesting. It's kind of a pejorative way of describing the situation where if you as a voter want to vote early by mail, you have a designated number of people who can return that ballot. And Arizona has a pretty small list of people who can return that ballot. It's a mail carrier, a family member, or a household member. I think caregivers are also included. Some states like California are much more generous. So that's the first provision at issue. The second provision deals with a situation where on election day, you go in person to vote, but you go to the wrong precinct. And so you vote provisionally in the wrong precinct. Under Arizona law, your entire ballot is trashed. So we're not just going to trash your ballot with respect to or not count your votes with respect to the people who are running in district elections where it matters which precinct you're voting in. We're also going to trash your ballot when it comes to the statewide elections, the federal elections. And in both of these cases, what we're talking about are Arizona laws that lead to a denial of your ability to vote. So contrast that with, for instance, the situation where we're talking about gerrymandering, how you draw district lines. In that case, those are vote dilution cases where your ability to weigh in on the election might be watered down, but your ballot isn't, in fact, trashed. In this case, we're talking about, again, two Arizona laws where your ballot is not counted either because you went to the wrong precinct on election day or because you asked the wrong person to turn your ballot in. Well, Jessica, those do seem like a pretty big deal. Now, what exactly happened during oral arguments in this case? Well, during oral arguments, the court, and of course, these are oral arguments on the phone, so people have heard me say this, but it feels like you are on a conference call with the judges, with the justices. So, During oral arguments, I heard about five votes, I think, to say that these restrictive laws in Arizona are, in fact, okay. Now, the big question in this case is going to be not just what happens to these Arizona laws, but what is the standard of review? What is the standard that we use to determine when there is a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? Now, I know this sounds so in the weeds to people, but it's actually incredibly important, meaning if you as a plaintiff say, look, I am living in Arizona, and my right to vote has been burdened, and I've been discriminated against on account of my race, and I want to bring a suit, it's really, really important what you have to show. If it's a fairly easy standard, 
then there are going to be a lot more people who are successful in these suits, and states and localities will have real limitations on what they can do. If it's going to be a really, really high standard, a really high threshold that you have to clear, then it will be much harder to win these cases. Uh, states and localities will have a lot more discretion in terms of implementing restrictive voting laws. And frankly, at that point, the Voting Rights Act, it's there and Section 2 still exists, but there's a real question as to how much work it actually does. So, you know, to get back to your question, Joe, about oral arguments, I think the court is looking at something like a two-part test in these vote denial cases. So, on the first instance, plaintiffs are going to have to prove something like a substantial racially discriminatory burden on voting. Now, what is a substantial burden? It's whatever five members of the court say it is, right? There is no black and white definition of what substantial is. And then I think I heard agreement on the idea that the state would then still be able to come forward and say, I know that your right to vote was burdened, but it's not on account of your race. It's actually based on this other reason that has nothing to do with race. And that reason, for instance, is fraud or trying to prevent fraud. So honestly, you know, I listened to the oral arguments and my takeaway was it feels like we are going to give states the benefit of the doubt when they say we're trying to prevent voter fraud, which frankly is incredibly rare, but we're not going to give individual plaintiffs the benefit of the doubt when they say my right to vote was burdened or even substantially burdened. I think that's where we're going to stand after oral arguments. So what recourse do voters in places like Arizona have and other states down the line if the Supreme Court rules as you think they're going to? Well, the Voting Rights Act is just that. It's a statute. So these are not decisions that are necessarily based on the Constitution. There is a constitutional claim in this case. We didn't talk about that. I don't think it's the biggest looming legal issue in this case. But what you can do is amend the Voting Rights Act or pass a new Voting Rights Act. And in fact, there's one pending. There's the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And that would bolster protections Uh, It would bring us back to something closer to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It would create another coverage formula, meaning basically we'd go back to having something like a Section 5, where certain states, where we're not sure if we trust them that much, they have to check in with the federal government before they make changes. And it would create more robust protections for individual plaintiffs. And Again, this is all happening against the backdrop of a lot of different states proposing what I view as restrictive voting laws in in a lot of situations, potentially not being able to show that there is, in fact, voter fraud that they're trying to combat. And this is really the moment for Congress to act. I wrote about this in a piece for MSNBC, shameless plug, and this is a great moment for Congress to protect individuals' rights to vote. Now, Jessica, now, this is something that continues to haunt me. It's haunted me for some time. Given that we live in a representative democracy, wouldn't we want everyone to vote? There was a stunning moment on Tuesday in the oral arguments for those who were paying attention. At one point, Justice Barrett asked, quote, 
what's the interest of the Arizona RNC in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct ballot disqualification rules on the books? Now, what she was asking here, in other words, is why the Arizona Republican Party is interested in these kinds of voting restrictions. Can you tell me what the Arizona RNC lawyer said in reply? I can. He said it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. And so this may be a situation if we just say the quiet part out loud. So often in these voting rights cases, there are two things at issue. There's a question of whether or not your right to vote is burdened as a result of your race. And then there's also the question of whether or not your right to vote isn't burdened because of your race, but because of your party affiliation, because sometimes race is viewed as a proxy for party affiliation. So these two things get tangled up and it gets even messier. This was, to me, a pretty stunning moment because, again, he replies very honestly and very openly, our harm is we're put at a political disadvantage. We're put at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. And that's a lot of what these voting rights cases are about. And it's always curious to me to see how these post-Trump paradigms are shifting. People saying brazen things out loud was kind of a hallmark of the Trump administration, and it remains to be seen how that's going to play out going forward. So very curious. Now, Jessica, a little bit of personal news on the home front here. We've been talking a lot about the pandemic. We launched this podcast in the midst of a pandemic last summer. Uh, You yourself got the needle this week. Can you tell us a little bit about what your experience was like getting your first coronavirus vaccination? That got the needle for some reason. I really paused on your phrasing, Joe. So yes, I am very lucky because in Los Angeles County, as a professor, I fall under education and I am now officially eligible. And anyone who knows me knows that I was on the computer uh, obsessively pushing refresh. And I have, look, this is a situation where I feel incredibly lucky and a little bit guilty because I have the time and the resources to be able to have a computer, stable internet access, and the ability to stay up late, get up early, and just keep pushing refresh. And knowing, frankly, that whenever I get the appointment, unless I'm in class, I can go. And all of those things are so fortunate. And it really, this vaccine rollout has to make us think deeply about inequality in so many ways that the pandemic has laid bare so many of the inequalities in our society. So I, in fact, uh, got the vaccine. Um, I'm not feeling terrific. I hope, uh, listeners, I hope this episode made sense because I am slightly off my game. And I will say to anybody on the fence, I really encourage you to get the vaccine. It's going to protect you. It's going to protect those around you. And at this point, I think it's a moral imperative. Uh, But you know, the punchline is I feel very grateful, uh, more than a little bit guilty and uh, more than a little bit hopeful. And now, Joe, in perhaps more distressing news, last night we were emailing about an actual bear. Do you want to fill us in on your latest developments? Yeah, you know, I live in the Eagle Rock-ish area north of downtown Los Angeles. And while I was wondering if you were hallucinating having had the vaccine, I was wondering last night if I was hallucinating because the special lady friend and I are kind of wrapping up our day. We're reading books. And if you live in Los Angeles, it's not unusual to have a number of helicopters hovering around your neighborhood. Bad traffic accidents, uh, car chases, God only knows, right? It's life in the big city. But last night, 
kind of late at night. There's a lot of helicopters hovering around my neighborhood. And I'm thinking, as I always think when there are a lot of helicopters flying around, what in the hell is going on? Have I moved to the green zone in Iraq? Was not the case. So I just kind of dismissed it. Again, life in the big city. And as I'm doing my end of the day news scouring, as I always do, kind of check in and see what's going to happen the next day, what happened today, what I need to be prepared for. I connected the dots and I saw one article on a small news outlet saying a bear in Eagle Rock. And I said, a bear in Eagle Rock. Now I know there are bears all over the San Gabriel Mountains, certainly up in the Sierra Nevada Mountains farther north of here. And occasionally you see them wandering down into Altadena, places that are very close to wild places. But I live in a semi-wild place, but we're surrounded by neighborhoods on all sides. But there was most certainly a bear Uh, Not a small bear. I found some tweets that had a picture of this bear. That thing stood, man, at least stomach high at the haunches. And, uh, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time in wild places, the bears aren't interested in you. They're just looking for your garbage, things like that. Try not to feed them. Try not to bother them. Maybe alert the authorities so they can take that bear and put it to a safe place. Jessica, do you ever see bears in your side of town? No, we've now reached the outer bounds of the outdoorsy portion of passing judgment. In fact, we don't see bears except for in books. And I really do feel like I've gone on a hike with you. So thank you for this producer and co-host, Joe. And I also want to take a quick moment to thank our listeners. We're getting even more reviews and ratings. We're really appreciative for that. And we read all of them. And anybody who emails me, I read that very carefully. And we try and take into account everything you say. A reminder that you can find Joe on the socials at In-Depth Day, the podcast at Past Judgment Pod, and me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. So Joe, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.